Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a look at how Nadal became the king of clay. It's a bit of a, a change of pace for how I usually do Monday Match Analysis classics, but I wanted to go back and celebrate the French Open and celebrate the reign of Rafael Nadal at the French Open, the 12-time champion. I wanted to do so by looking back at the very start of his incredible and unparalleled title reign. So I went back and I watched the 2005 French Open semifinal between Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal. I also attempted to watch the 2006 final between Federer and Nadal. And I got to be honest with you, I couldn't see the tennis ball. For whatever reason, every single recording, I just could not see the tennis ball. But Um, I did take a look into that match as well. But the reality of the string of matches, four years in a row, from 2005 to to 2008, Federer and Nadal met in the French Open. None of those matches are really worth close examination. Rather, if anything, they deserve to be lumped together. Because they all looked kind of similar. And that's what I want to talk about on today's show. I want to talk about this matchup in general. And how this played out on clay. Um, And to take a look at the history between Federer and Nadal. Specifically on this surface. So let's set the stage for their first meeting in 2005. Shall we? Um, Federer has won 19 straight finals at this point. He's been number one in the world for 15 months. And the major storyline heading into 2005 for Federer is the fact that he has a chance to become the first player since Andre Agassi to win all four major titles on three distinct surfaces. He would only become the sixth player of all time to accomplish that feat. Federer hadn't dropped a set all tournament. And after being upset in the third round in the year prior at the French Open, it looked like this was Federer's year. He was going to do it. And everyone knew that the French Open was going to be the most challenging major for Federer. A lot of players with his you know, similar play style that came before him had similar difficulty breaking through at the French. Pete Sampras, Boris Becker, John McEnroe. All of those are players who uh, were eluded by that French Open title. All players that centered their game around attacking styles, a lot of net play, and big serves. Federer had four slams at this point, but it was very clear that Roger was something special. Maybe something that the tennis world had never seen before. And he was coming off a year in 2004 when he won three of the four major titles. His opponent was another person who had really captured everyone's imagination, another person that everyone knew was not a normal player. That much was clear. Federer was in his first, excuse me, Nadal was in his first French Open main draw, and there he was in the semifinal right away. That's not normal. (laughs) Most players don't enter their first main draw and they're in the semifinal right away. 
But at the same time, it wasn't a complete shock. Nadal was up to number four in the world at this time, and he had won Monte Carlo, Barcelona, and Rome coming into the tournament. This match was played on Nadal's 19th birthday. So it was very clear that Rafa was up and coming, that perhaps he would be Federer's main rival, at least on clay, for the foreseeable future. What wasn't clear was whether or not Nadal was ready to beat Roger Federer in a best-of-five match. The two had met two times before, both at Miami. The first time, Nadal stunned Federer. At just um, 17 years of age, Nadal beat Federer in Miami. Now, earlier in 2005, Nadal went up two sets to love, and Federer came back to win the match in five. Dick Enberg summed it up. This, is, this match is the best player in the world versus the rising Rafael Nadal. You had... Um, Chiria in the finals, lefty Argentine. Uh, so this was also kind of the de facto final here in the semifinals. So both players, I mean, this was a huge opportunity for, uh, for both players. Here's what happened in the match. And again, keep in mind, when I started watching this match, I thought I would really go in-depth and give you a, a deep technical breakdown of, of what went down in this match. It just so happened that I'm not sure this match was really worth it. Federer came out in the first set and made 18 unforced errors. Ten of them were on the forehand side. Now, the Federer forehand at this time was widely regarded as the greatest weapon in men's tennis, perhaps the greatest weapon in the history of men's tennis. The Federer forehand was the lifeblood of this young Swiss who was suddenly a world beater on tour. But in the first set, he just wasn't putting it in the court. It was it was going all over the place. And all the young Nadal had to do was do a lot of running and put balls in the court, and Federer was going to miss. Roger usually also benefits from a serve that he can get free points from, that he can get aces from. That wasn't the case in the first set, and that wouldn't be the case for the entire match. At the end of the day, Federer needed his forehand. There was no if, ends, or buts, no way around it. This wasn't Wimbledon, where Federer could have serve and volleyed with his forehand missing the mark. He couldn't force his way to the net. He really had to use his forehand, and Nadal was so fast that it wasn't just going to be one or two forehands. Federer maybe would have to hit four or five forehands in order to win the point, but that's something that most people would expect Roger Federer, the greatest forehand in men's tennis, to be able to do at this time. In the first set, he couldn't. In the second set, he really came up with some magical moments, and he made a lot of his first serves, and his first strike tennis was quite good. He would, he really made a living in this second set out of hitting a wide serve on the first and getting a short return and hitting forehands into the open court and following it into the net. The forehand wasn't all over the place. He wasn't making errors. 
um, as much as he was in the first set. And he was also coming up with just classic Federer magic, whether that be making difficult volleys or hitting picture-perfect drop shot winners from behind the baseline. Federer started to really flow in this second set and impose his will on Nadal. Federer was 13 for 15 at the net in the second set, whereas he was 4 for 11 at the net in the first set. The third set is where we really see both players at their best. It's the closest thing we saw, at least, to both players at their best, and it was the highest quality set that we saw. Both players played some great return games and traded breaks. Nadal's defense at this point and his counterpunching was dialed in. And the one thing that escaped Federer in this set was the first serve. And Nadal is so good at hitting heavy second serve returns, especially on clay. And and Federer was below 40% on his second serve percentage. At 4-5, Federer had a game where he really struggled with his second serve. So not only were there some points where Nadal went on the offense straight away from the second serve return, there were also a couple points, the first point of the game and the last point of the game, where Nadal was looked dead in the water on the defensive and used his incredible ability to counterattack to win the point. A passing shot on the first point, a Federer overhead that he retrieved on breakpoint, and uh, won the point later with a swinging volley winner. It was a great game by Nadal, borderline kind of a, a god mode game from Nadal, and he took the third set 6-4. Repeatedly, Nadal was winning the big points in this match, and it's not that Federer wasn't in it, but things were not going his way. And in the fourth set, you could really see just how off the mark and disconcerted Federer was. Nadal played one of his worst games of the entire match at one all in the fourth set, but Federer promptly gave that break back with some really shocking misses. There were a couple balls in this fourth set, a couple occasions where Nadal hit atrocious drop shots only to be wasted by Federer. There was a point at at um, at 3-1. Federer had 40-15 and Nadal hit a drop shot, or excuse me, it was 3-2. Federer had 40-15, Nadal hit a terrible drop shot. And Federer got there in plenty of time and hit the backhand into the tape. He double-faulted on the next point. And eventually, he made two forehand unforced errors, both inside the court, closed stance forehands, to give Nadal the break back. There would be two occasions in this set where Nadal hit the net cord and got lucky, won the point because he hit the net cord. And both times, Federer just looked outright disgusted. How uncharacteristic is that? If you are in the correct frame of mind, if Roger Federer is in the correct frame of mind, he's easily able to shake that kind of misfortune off and put it in the rear view. But Federer was clearly ornery, clearly frustrated, and he could feel this big opportunity to win that elusive French Open title, he could feel it slipping away. So much so that when it got dark at the end of the fourth set, Federer was asking the chair umpire for play to be continued tomorrow. 
Nadal would do no such thing, and it appeared that Nadal was seeing the ball just fine, but Roger Federer was begging for the match to be suspended. A clear sign of weakness, a clear sign of panic. Federer would play another extraordinarily loose game at 4-3, which set the stage for Nadal to serve it out. Mind you, Rafa Nadal is 19 years old. Rafa Nadal is in his first Grand Slam semifinal. And what does he do? Closing out for a chance to go to the final. He hits three clean winners. He hits two forehand winners. He puts away an overhead, and he forces a Federer error on game point, on match point, rather. Absolute fury. No nerves whatsoever. Nadal was nerve-proof at this time. What would, he do, what would he do under pressure? He would ramp up the in intensity. On a normal point, Nadal's intensity is, well, on a scale from 0 to 100, I would say 100. But on a big point, it's about 110 out of 100. Regardless, Federer really didn't play his game here. He started off the match atrociously. He finished the match atrociously. The forehand, his best shot, did not resemble any kind of strength. And I, I, I want to draw your attention to what Fetter said after the match, pretty much not sugarcoating it and confirming what everyone saw. Federer said, all in all, I'm not happy with my performance. I didn't feel like he was much better than me today. I thought I had the keys to beat him, and it's unfortunate I was not at my best. He was a little bit quicker to rag on his own game than to give Nadal credit. And who's to say that if Federer played great, that Nadal still wouldn't have won the match anyway? But at the end of the day, Federer didn't give himself a chance with the way he played in the first and the fourth set. Federer made 62 unforced errors in this match. Nadal played made 32. I want to go back and I want to dissect why Federer maybe didn't play his best tennis. But first, let me just let me just paint a picture here. This wasn't a one-off in 2005. Federer didn't just play a, a loose, error-filled match in 2005 and then he got down to business. No, this became a pattern. You see the title of my video, When Nadal Became the King of Clay? That probably wasn't in 2005. I'd say that was in 2006 because maybe, at, maybe 2005 was just a fluke. And Federer, who is still the best player in the world, still winning almost every major title at this point, maybe 2005 was just a, just a bad day in the office for Federer. And the next time he faced Nadal, maybe he'd get the best of him. As a result, people were so excited for the French Open final in 2006. Ted Robinson on the NBC broadcast opened the match. He said, can you remember the last time a match was this anticipated? And Mary Carrillo was almost lost for words. She said, well, maybe Pete and Andre the last time they played in the U.S. Open in 2002. This was a momentous occasion. Roger Federer had beaten every single person he played in 2006. He was 44-0, but he was 0-3 against Rafael Nadal. 
Nadal was 12-0 in clay court finals at this point in his career. Still Federer, the number one player in the world. Nadal, the number two player in the world. And Federer came out guns of bla- guns blazing in this 2006 French Open match. He won the first set 6-1. And then he just went away. Nadal dominated. He won the second set 6-1. Then he won 6-4. And he won a fourth set tiebreak. 7-6. Federer uh, won four points in that tiebreak. And again, I go to the quote book from Roger Federer. I go to the quote book. He says, quote, I unfortunately did not play the match that I had hoped to play. I made too many errors, and especially after I won the first set so easily. Usually I don't let an opportunity like that escape. Again, Federer upset with his own performance. Well, let's go to 2007. A match where Federer made 59 unforced errors to Nadal's 27. Nadal defeated Federer 6-3-4-6-6-3-6-4. And I want to give Nadal the mic now. Nadal afterwards said, Look, Roger sometimes plays very, very aggressive, especially with the forehand. But anyway, you know, I think he has the best forehand on tour, no? But yeah, the truth is, he had some mistakes today. More than usual. So already, even Nadal saying... You know, again, Federer really didn't give me his best stuff in the 2007 French Open final. They met again in 2008, and man, I don't need to say so much about this match. Nadal won it 6-1, 6-3, 6-love. Then they met again in 2011, and Nadal won 7-5, 7-6, 5-7, 6-1. That was after Federer beat Djokovic in five sets in the semifinal. But I think by that time, by 2008, by 2011, the window had closed for Roger Federer. I think it's very, very safe to say that Nadal was too good on clay at that point for anybody to beat. But what about when Nadal was 17 years old? I mean, or excuse me, what about when Nadal was, I meant 19 years old? He's a lot worse in 2005 than he was in 2008. Just look at his body. The difference in the development that Nadal had physically year after year after year was, was very clear. And based on, on the results, man, I mean, Federer was playing as well as ever in 2005 and 2006, some of his best years. So how come when it came to the French Open and just in general against Nadal, Federer had so much trouble putting his best foot forth. By the way, in 2005, I don't know if I said the unforced error count, but Federer made 62 unforced errors, and Nadal made 32. Why was this such a pattern? Why did Federer get so sloppy against Nadal on clay? It's kind of what I want to talk about, because... If you're not considering the fact that Nadal had a huge part in this, well, you're out of your mind. Nadal must have had a huge part in this. The best player in the world doesn't just go out onto the court and coincidentally make, you know, 50 plus unforced errors without his opponent forcing that on him.
a lot of people ask me about the Federer Djokovic matchup, and a lot of people have have asked me to give my opinion as to whether or not Djokovic intimidates Federer, whether or not Djokovic is in Federer's head. I've never felt like that is the case. I've never ever felt that way because Federer has consistently played pretty well against Djokovic. Even when he's lost, I can confidently say that most of the time when Federer plays Djokovic, Federer plays his best tennis. And there was a stretch from 2011 to 2016 where Djokovic was the best player in the world. And when Djokovic and Federer played, Djokovic normally won. But I don't think that's because Federer had a mental block against Djokovic. I think they played some close matches that Djokovic came through at the end. But at the end of the day, I think Federer was always ready to beat Novak. This matchup was different. When Federer first started playing Nadal, I think Federer was pretty miffed. I think Federer was pretty intimidated. And I don't think Federer really knew what to do about this guy. That was really clear from watching this 05 French Open. Because that was not the Roger Federer anyone knows. That was a different Federer. And he was wearing it all over his face, all over his on-court demeanor. You don't often see Federer so frustrated, so indecisive. So many times you could see that Federer couldn't decide whether to go cross-court or down the line. There was a, ma a major break point where Federer thought he wanted to run around the backhand and then realized that he wanted to just hit a normal backhand and... With his footwork completely out of whack, he missed the backhand badly and yet, and let out a scream of frustration as loud as he possibly could because he knew that this guy was not letting him play clear-minded tennis. He was second-guessing himself, and he did not know what to do. What is it about Rafael Nadal on clay? And what was it about a young Rafa Nadal? that had the great Roger Federer, the best player in the world, intimidated and, a, and at a loss. Because clearly that that's what was, was happening. So Federer, he, he, he couldn't give him his best. And let me be clear before I get into this. No one is saying, no one is saying that if Roger Federer played his best tennis, that Rafa Nadal would have lost. No one's saying that. But... Tell me about the classic match that Nadal and Federer played at the French Open. Tell me about it. You really can't. You really can't. Because none of them were great. And I don't just mean none of them were close. I don't think the quality ever really got to uh, the level that people thought it should. So what are the factors behind this? First of all, Nadal comes out, and the way he carries himself is very, very different. So the first thing I want to talk about is body language, because it's very different. The fact that Nadal would jump up and down um, in the tunnel before they walked out for the match, the fact that when it was time to flip a coin, to see who would serve first, that Nadal would, would never 
let would never let um, the guys of warriorship. He would never let that go away. And I'm sure there are better ways to say that. But what what I'm really trying to say is when Nadal had his game face on, first of all, it was a pretty intense routine he would have, full of energy and poison and fury. And he would never quite relent, regardless as, you know, the match hadn't even started yet. We're not even playing. And Rafa looks like he could kill you. And Nadal talks about in his book why he does all that stuff. He does it to psych himself up. Because by nature, Rafa Nadal is an insecure person. Rafa Nadal is not a confident person. Rafa Nadal is a soft-spoken person. Rafa Nadal is shy. Rafa Nadal is unbecoming. These are all things you cannot be on a tennis court. And Nadal knows that. Why does he put his headband on in the locker room and jump up and down and look in the mirror like, like he's about to go risk his life on a, on a field somewhere? Like he's about to sword fight someone or, or something like that? Why does he do that? He does that to transform himself, to turn into someone else. And the fact that he does that, the fact that he is willing to, to, to put on this face and look at Roger Federer right in the eye before the match even starts and to be jumping around like, like he's ready to, to, to fight him, it's a little intimidating. It's a little intimidating. There was a point in the second set where Roger Federer served for the, mat, served for the set at 5-2. And Nadal broke Federer for 5-3. But he was still down a break. And Nadal celebrated like he had just won the set. It is the, the messages that he sends across the court is like, is, is that of an unbreakable player. The effort that he puts into every shot also plays into that. His body language is intimidating, and I'll leave it at that. Second thing, his speed. Why was Roger Federer so scratchy? Why, why did Federer miss so many forehands in this 05 semifinal? Because it's really hard to hit it past Nadal at this point in his career on clay. It's nearly impossible. You got to hit a lot of great shots. You got to get them off the court. Then you got to hit it pretty clean into the open court. Or you got to hit a pretty great angle behind him. You got to come up with something. Because he is going to, first of all, hustle as hard as he can after every ball. He's extremely fast. Whether that be top end, um, his top end speed. Whether it be his, his lateral quickness. Whether it be his reactions. And... I think that is another reason why Federer kind of second-guessed himself, where it's like, how am I really supposed to hit it past this guy? I'm on a clay court. I don't want to go to the net too much. It's hard to get my footing at the net sometimes. And, you know, Nadal has these dipping these dipping passing shots that aren't fun to deal with. I don't want to go to the net that much. I, I really need to finish with my forehand. But 
God, it's really hard to finish this guy from the baseline because he's so, so, so fast. He doesn't miss very much either. So how am I winning the point here? And he can go all day. Think Nadal's speed was really intimidating. Third thing, the topspin. Think that bothered Federer a ton. And do you know what I feel is an overplayed narrative? The idea that Nadal just picked on Federer's backhand and that was enough for Nadal to win every meeting on clay. Look, everyone on tour knew to hit to Federer's backhand. Everyone on tour knew that Federer's forehand was a was something to try to stay away from if you can. No one was beating him. I don't think it's about Nadal playing to Federer's backhand more than an ordinary player would. It's about the kick up off the court. That was annoying. That was impossible to deal with. That kept Federer's court position in check. You know, Federer is a, a player, I mean, he's so good at taking the ball early, but when Nadal, when if, if Nadal is going to, if you're going to try to take the ball early against Nadal, his shots don't land that deep. So to take the ball on the rise, you got to be way inside the court. Taking the ball on the rise is kind of tough on clay. The bounce isn't as consistent as it is on a hard court. You know, I don't think that Federer enjoys hitting forehands up by his ears either. Or even at shoulder height. I think he likes him hip level. But he wasn't getting that against Nadal. And it was keeping him back. He was either having to hit, a, hit on the rise on clay, which is, it's really not so much fun to do. It's not, it's not much fun. Um, plus it's, it, it's hard to hit it clean. It's hard to change direction. Federer is incredible. He could do it more than most players, but it, it's hard to do. But the, the, when Federer was probing the baseline, even he was hitting balls higher than he wanted to all the time. And I think that was extremely frustrating. The fourth thing is, well, before I, before I move on, it's actually amazing to me that it's kind of amazing to me that no one has replicated what Nadal has done with topspin. That for... It's amazing to me that for 15-plus for years, Rafa Nadal has been on tour. Um, or not 15-plus, but, you know, about 15. Nadal has been on tour hitting with more topspin than anyone else, and that no one has been able to really replicate the way he hits a tennis ball. Regardless of how effective and how annoying it might be to, to try to deal with that kind of topspin, no one, else, no one else has been able to do it. Every time Nadal swings at the ball, it's with maximum racket speed, maximum effort. The only thing that changes is how much momentum Nadal is, is transferring up towards the sky for, for topspin or out through the court when he wants to flatten it out. That's the only thing that changes forehand to forehand. You know what doesn't change? The racket speed, the effort level. It's just, and, and you know, a lot of different, you know, other Spanish players have tried to replicate it, but no one has been able to hit the ex extraordinary topspin that Nadal has. And I think, it, you know, it bothered the heck out of Federer on clay. I think it bothers the heck out of everyone on clay. 
It might be number one. It might be the number one hardest part about playing Nadal on clay. Is not only is this guy incredibly fast, but how am I supposed to attack these balls that are kicking up eight feet in the air? How? Impossible. Plus, the guy's not missing. I like to tack that on. I like to always tack that on. He's not missing. Last thing is the age. Maybe Federer was a little bit intimidated in 2005 by how young Nadal is. It's, it's added pressure. No one wants to lose to a teenager. No one wants to lose to someone younger than them. So it's added pressure. But also, if he's this good now, how good is he going to be in a couple of years? For some reason, it was different than Leighton Hewitt. It was different than Andy Roddick. Rafa Nadal just tapped into a whole nother level of striking fear into, into Roger Federer. I think all these things are at play. The speed, the age, the topspin, the body language, how Nadal dressed was also a factor. This was just a different tennis creature. It was a tennis creature that no one had ever seen, including Roger Federer. And I think that Federer was a little bit miffed by him. He didn't really know what the answer was. Didn't really know what he wanted to do. And oftentimes what you'll find in tennis is, you know, there's... Having the wrong game plan is probably better than not knowing what the game plan is. And it just seemed like Federer did not know what the game plan is and never figured out what the game plan is. And he was constantly changing it. That's why he just was not able to put together his best tennis. I think that's what this era is of, of clay court or, or this, this French Open stretch between Federer and Nadal. It's kind of what it was characterized. As great as Nadal was, Federer, Federer was never really good enough to even push Nadal to the the brink was never even good enough to to push Nadal into like like Djokovic did against Nadal in 2013. Federer never was able to do that. Um, and I do think there was mental stuff at play here. It wasn't just Clay either. After 2005, after that semifinal, the next time they played was in Dubai on a hard court. Federer was a better hard court player than Nadal at this time. Nadal won. Federer was a better hardcourt player than Nadal when they met in Miami in 2004. Nadal won. Nadal won six of the first seven meetings against Federer. The all-time head-to-head was 23-10 in favor of Nadal before 2017. Now, of course, Federer has won six of his last seven. And I think on grass, Federer always took solace in the fact, well, I have my serve, and Nadal doesn't have much of one. So I think Federer was always pretty confident if the court was fast enough that his serve would be his friend, that he could take out Nadal on the faster courts. Uh, but on the slower courts, it seemed like Federer never really had his confidence. And that started in 2005 when Federer played a match before Nadal was as good as he would get. Again, I think there was a window here, a window where Federer had a chance to compete with Nadal on clay before Nadal got way too good for anybody, where Federer was too intimidated to match up with Rafa. 
Just to complete the story here, of course, uh, Nadal loses to Robin Soderling in 2009, and Federer takes that opportunity to win his French Open and complete the career Grand Slam. So that's how that's how this book kind of ends, um, and you know they they met again in the 2019. Um, French Open semi-final, and that was another match. You know, I, I actually thought Federer played fine in that match. I don't think there's anything Federer could have done. I think Nadal was Nadal was too good. With, with Nadal's assets in those conditions, I don't think Federer could have possibly won. So, um, you know, I think things have gotten better for Federer, clearly, right? Now, now the head-to-head has, has shifted. It's turned around, and that's what happened in 2017. But but before then, I thought that if there was a if there was a mental block for Federer, it is not against Djokovic. It was, it was against Nadal. Let me know what you guys think. Um, I'm not sure what's next on MMA Classics. Perhaps it is time for a Q and A very soon. But I uh, hope you enjoyed this. Um, please leave a rating and a review. On iTunes, the link to the podcast is in the description. Um, I'm, I'm trying to get those ratings up on, or not the ratings up. I, I have five stars, but I'm trying to get more ratings, more reviews on iTunes. So that's doing me a big favor. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New New episodes of Fly on the Wall and drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wall wherever you get your podcasts.